Hi, welcome back to Secrets of the Sale. Thanks again for tuning in. I am uber excited to have with me Kenneth Morrison. Kenneth Morrison is an affordable housing developer in Harlem. He is the president of the Lamore Realtor Corporation, a second generation of affordable and mixed income housing developer. He is also an asset manager, a property manager in business for over 30 years. He co-founded Lamore Development in 2013, which focuses on real estate investments, consulting, and development. He is a licensed real estate broker and a registered apartment manager. He works with municipal municipal agencies from the Housing Community Renewal, the New York City Housing Development Corporation, New York City Housing Preservation Development, the City of New York, uh, Newark, my apologies, and HUD. Mr. Morrison has successfully developed nearly over 1,300 units in the City of New York, and he's also expanded into the Atlanta markets. He uh, works on projects from the the Robeson, a 79-unit new construction development located in Harlem on Lenox Avenue, the Mount Hope Renaissance, a South Bronx, uh, a 515-unit preservation development in South, South Bronx in partnership with the NCV LLC and the Mount Hope Housing, Tucker View Apartments, 42 units of new construction development in Newark, New Jersey, and the list goes on. Mr. Morrison holds a bachelor degree of science and uh, in business and entrepreneurship, and he maintains memberships in many organizations related to housing. Mr. Morrison, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Nadine. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I agree. Um, so what is in store for Lamour Development in the new decade? Sure. So there are, there are a few answers, uh, a few steps to the answer on that question. Um, the first that we're, we're establishing and growing our internal uh, infrastructure. So we're bringing on more development professionals. Uh, we're bringing, uh, enhancing our accounting department. Uh, we have a project and construction property, uh, construction manager now. Uh, we're doing training of our existing, existing staff, our asset managers, uh, and our property management staff. Okay. So that's the first part. Uh, the, then we have we're approaching the new decade with three different strategies. Um, the first is the development of new construction, um, which is kind of self-explanatory, but most of the projects we've worked on have been in Harlem uh, in the Bronx. Okay. Uh, but now we're starting to look throughout the region. So we've recently been on a project in Mount Vernon. Uh, we're in pre-development for an affordable housing site in Yonkers, New York, and we're looking at two sites in Buffalo right now. So we're looking to establish a pipeline of affordable housing um, in the New York City region or in the New York State region. Um, also part of that, we're looking to do preservation deals like the Mount Hope deal. Um, the Mount Hope was a partnership with the not-for-profit and another for-profit developer. Uh, but we're looking for other opportunities where we can take uh, an existing portfolio uh, that's been um, in use for maybe 30 years but needs some upgrades to the portfolio. So, um, so we look. We're also looking for preservation deals. Um, that's the first part of the strategy. The second part are would be investments like our Atlanta deal. So, in 2018, uh, we invested into a value add property. It's 120 units. Um, it's right outside of Atlanta. Uh, we like that area for a few reasons. One of them is my partner. Like, went to went to Morehouse. Okay. So their relationships um, in in Atlanta. I have a lot of family in Atlanta, uh, and we just like what we see. The metrics that we see in Atlanta. So we're looking at other projects outside the city of Atlanta. Most 
multifamilies. Uh, we want to get to the point where we get to maybe a thousand units there so we can send an asset manager and have someone permanently permanently there looking at the portfolio. And then number three would be just raising equity, raising cash, right? So that's part of the reason why we need to professionalize our staff. Uh, as we, when I've done development deals in the past, they've been one-offs. So I go to the, uh, either uh, an investment fund, um, I'll go to an organization like Enterprise or List for pre-development or a high net worth individual. But we're, we need to sophisticate our, our staff and our office to be able to, to broaden who we can go to to raise those dollars. So we're looking to, to create and raise a fund. Okay, okay. So regarding uh, Atlanta, that project that you're working on, is it in an opportunity zone? It is not. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's not. And um, when we purchased, it was the opportunity zones weren't established at the time, um, but we didn't, we weren't even thinking about the opportunity zone. Now we do okay. look at opportunity zones okay. um, when we think about investment, but that doesn't necessarily exclude a property for us. You know, bef- the metrics have to make sense for us. Okay. Um, if it makes sense for our investors and it's not in the, in the opportunity zone, we're still going to take a look at it. We're going to take a stab at it. Understood. Yeah. So how did you start in real estate? So, so in 1988, um, so my dad was a, a um, he worked for the Transit Authority, and he retired in the mid, uh, towards the, the 1980s, maybe 87, 88. Um, but he also uh, was a real estate broker. Okay. All right? So he's an entrepreneur. He's a real estate broker, and he also did income taxes. So he had those other businesses going on. So I joined him in 1988 when he retired, and we formed Lamore Realty Corporation. And I, I came on as a salesperson. Okay. And during that period of time, my dad did own a couple of properties. He owned a, a, a brownstone, a Rubin house, and he also owned a 20-unit apartment building that he was managing. And as we were doing sales, the market in, in Harlem in the 1980s was nothing like what it is now. I know that. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, were, there weren't many sales happening. Um, there was redlining at that period of time. Mm. Um, there were some individuals who tried to buy brownstones, but they just wasn't financing for it. So only folks who were buying brownstones were investors, right? So I realized that this is I, I'm not going to make a living being able to do this. So we looked at doing property management since my father already had a couple of properties. So we established a property management business. Uh, right. We reached out to um, local owners, just came together with marketing material. We became seven-day administrators. We connected with a not-for-profit organization that provided uh, support to some HDFCs. So we started managing HDFCs. Uh, like I said, we became seven-day administrators. But Can you just expl- explain, I'll explain what that is? Yes, because please. that's what got us into development. Got so it. a seven-day administrator is very similar to a receiver, like a bank receiver, right? Mm-hmm. So a property goes into foreclosure. Uh, the bank will go to court and ask for a receiver to oversee and manage the property until the financial aspect of the mortgage is, is, is worked out. What a seven-day administrator does is the owner doesn't necessarily fall behind in their mortgage, uh, but they're not providing services to the building. So the tenants would petition housing court and ask for the judge for remediation to have someone step in in the owner's shoes and manage the property until the owner takes care of the issues, right? So we would go into buildings that had uh, they, no heat. Um, they needed new roofs. Um, half the building wasn't paying rent. I mean, just conditions were horrible. Right. So, but but the the interesting thing about being a seven day administrator, a seven day administrator could put debt on the property even though they didn't own the property. So we could go to the city of New York and and get funds to install a new boiler or get funds to install a new roof or to do some plumbing upgrades. So we did that, and as we were doing that. We, learned, we, we were learning some of that construction business. Uh, and then in the mid-1990s, there was an RFQ that we saw. Uh, it was called the NEP program, Neighborhood Entrepreneurs Program. Okay. And they were looking for 
not necessarily developers, but they were looking for property managers that had some development experience or rehab experience. Got it. Um, you had to either live in the community or your office had to be in the community where the properties were. And the properties were in the in South Bronx, um, Bushwick, Brownsville, Harlem. And there were 11 rounds of this uh, of the initial program. So we submitted for the RFQ because it looked like it fit us to a T. Right. And we were selected for the, our first round, which is our first deal was on 140th Street. It was three vacant buildings on 140th between um, 7th and 8th or Adam Clayton Powell and okay. Frederick Dulles. And one building uh, uh, occupied 51-unit building on 7th Avenue on 40th Street. So the three vacant buildings, we did a gut rehab. And then the occupied building, we did uh, moderate rehab with tenants in place. So it was funded. The construction funding was with, with Chase. The uh, total development cost was a little over $10 million. Uh, Enterprise provided the tax credit. So it was our very first development deal. It was our very first affordable deal. It was our very first entree into the development world. Mm. Um, so that happened at around maybe 96, 97. And then there were v- rounds after that, right? There, so we went around one, then it was around two, around three, round four, five, so on. So we, again, in two, maybe a couple of years later, we applied for round three, okay. which we received at that time uh, a 200 unit portfolio. It was actually 220 units, but after re- reconfiguration, it was 200 units, seven buildings, all in the same area, Central Harlem, uh, 140th, 141st, starting from Lenox over to Ferret Dulles. So that was our second development deal. So now we're at a little over 300 units. And then there was a developer who was actually selected for round two. Um, he had a partner, but his partner... Um, had to come out the deal. So the city of New York asked us to step in with the partner. So we ended up in three NEP deals in this span of time, right? So we've gone over a f- from a few years from managing properties for others to now developing these tax credit deals on our own. So the second deal with um, the partner was was financed with Citibank. So now we're working with a different bank. Um, total, de- It was 96 units. Total development costs were around $9 million. Um, and then the round three, the 200 units, was uh, it was about a $20 million deal. Um, Chase was financing. It was low-income tax credit. So now we're, we're learning the development business, but this is all preservation work. And then from that time forward, we started working on other affordable programs. Um, there was a program called thir- third-party transfer. So you finance those. Uh, instead of using tax credits, you had to come up with, you had to use your actual own equity. Um, but, you know, this is the, how, how you, you, you progress in the business, right? So you use some of your own equity. It's still affordable in right. the sense it's a regulatory agreement, but we were able to develop and own those properties also. So, like, over that span of maybe five to six years, we've developed maybe a total of six, 700 units in that period of time. We also did some for sale. Uh, we did some um, nine homes in Brooklyn, and then we also did nine homes in Harlem. Okay. So, those were properties owned by HUD. Um, so, there was three different rounds. So, we sold the nine homes in Brooklyn. Um, and same thing, but the, there was a project of five homes um, in Harlem and another four. So we also did some for sale. So for the most part, um, that's that's my entree into the development world, um, rehab of the existing portfolio, and then also the for sale um, of those 18 units. That's amazing. This yeah. is like, I didn't even know that you were involved in that magnitude. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah. Uh, so what role can the community stakeholders play to become a part of the solution to creating affordable housing? So, you know, I approach uh, affordable housing, you have to think about it um, from an economic perspective, right? right? So, and and the market in New York is not what I consider a true market in the mm. sense that we have rent stabilization, 
right, for maybe almost half of the units, um, of the, half of the rental units in New York City. And then you have those either co-ops, condos, and then you have uh, non-regulated units, right? So you have over, a little over 2 million units, rental units. So you don't have a true market because you have rent stabilization. So you don't know what the real true highs are or the real true low real true lows are because you have rent stabilization which skews things, right? So you have families who will be in a three-bedroom, they will raise their children in this three-bedroom apartment, um, children will leave, but they won't move out of it. It'd be a one one or two persons in a two in a three-bedroom, they won't move out because they can't find something comparable and affordable rent, right? So because you have these tremendously high, skewed high rents, right? So that's number one. Rent stabilization is going nowhere, so it's, that part is not going to change, but I think it just needs to be part of the conversation, right? Because okay. you don't really know what the true market value for these units are. Uh, but secondly, there has to be government assistance, you know, and it's not, I'm not trying to make it a political um, conversation, but if you're going to have, when you're going to have these highly skewed rents uh, in New York City, you have to have government involvement, right? Um, you have to look at the various programs that are out there. You have um, Section 8, mm-hmm. um, you have Home. Um, you have tax credit, and I think for, for the most part, when you're talking about new construction, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about tax credits, and you have to look at what works. And you know, obviously, tax credit deals are working. Um, there are families that have Section 8 certificates or vouchers, um, and the issue with the Section 8 um, vouchers is that some landlords don't take them, hmm. right? It's against the law, but they just don't take them, right? And a part of that, the issue is, I think it's administratively, um, I know sometimes I've taken on a Section 8 um, a, a tenant with a Section 8 voucher or certificate, and it's two months before the apartment gets inspected and moved the family in. So you can't expect landlords to want to grasp onto that until you change that administratively. So, And then the, the second issue is Section 8 certificates have maximum rents that they're allowed to pay. Well, and a lot of times those rents, those rents don't reach what the market is in certain neighborhoods. So there's that issue also. So you have to have the, the stakeholders that just have to push the government to provide more funding, uh, be more creative on how they provide funding. Um, tax credits, you know, there needs to be, you know, tax credits are funded with either uh, in conjunction with bonds. And sometimes there's a limit of bond dollars that are available. So you have to put dollars into it. And it's unfortunate, but that's that's the way I see it. The stakeholders just have to push for those successful programs and just put more dollars behind them. I'm very happy that you mentioned that. Uh, this morning, literally, I just posted this. I found this article in, right. I, I don't remember what, well, it's called, To Solve Our Low-Income Housing Crisis, The Voucher System Must Work for Landlords Too. Right. As you just stated. So, yes, landlords have to be a part of the solution. However, as you mentioned, there's a host of layers of issues that has to occur before the, the, the tenant moves in. Right. Inspection. Right. And, and then you have to get annual inspections annually, right. right? So you have to get inspections annually. So what happens is now these landlords are negatively impacted if they have an issue that has to be remedied and this government is like, I'm not paying you your rent until you fix that. But you know how am I going to fix it if I don't have the money to fix it? If or, you're if not you don't get, or if you don't get access from the resident. Right. So that's another issue. Right. So yeah. I've I've seen I've you know I've taken plenty of Section Eight. Right. Uh, I have plenty of Section Eight tenants, but right. I've seen the negative side of what can happen to landlords. There's definitely a positive, right? This is needed, but landlords, you know, if you get burned, you know, you're not apt to go go that route again. And, right. and you have to. I think municipalities or government have to recognize that landlords are not social service institutions. They're mm. businesses, right? So for them, it's dollars and cents. That's right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yes. I'm just saying you have to recognize that's what it is. Right. And if you approach it with that aspect, I think you might get a better response from the, the, the private market. Right. right? Landlords, I, you know, I'm a landlord. I'm, I'm born and raised in the city. I, I live in Harlem. So I have concern about who's living in my communities, right? So I may it, it may be okay for me to wait two months, but a lot of landlords, 
They can't afford it. They can't afford it. Yeah. All right. They're just not going to do it. No, no. Right. And then also the bureaucracies of the, the courts. Right. The court system is backlogged. So how yes. long is it going to take your te- you right. to evict the tenant? It's going right. to take over a year. Right. Exactly. It, it, is that fair to a private landlord who, you know, who's trying to pay? They got a, a multifamily to help them pay their rent or their right. mortgage. And now they're about to lose their home because right. the government is not doing their job. Right. There's a misconception that all landlords are filthy rich. That's another part of that. Right. And, and, exactly. that's, and that's not the case. Right. I mean, there are, don't get me wrong, there are, there are, there there are, are plenty of, of right. them. Uh, it's New York City. There's yes. going to be that. But yes. most landlords are small business owners, like myself, right. who own a few units. I mean, we're doing development now, but there are some that just own a couple of apartment buildings. And if they don't collect their rent from one or two tenants, they're in trouble. They can make their mortgage payments. That's right. right? Can make their real estate tax payments. That's so. Right. Yeah, so you have to look at it in that sense. That's right. Yeah, folks have to be incentivized to do it. I'm glad you brought that up. That was crucial. What can tenants do to minimize the negative impact of gentrification for themselves and their families? You know, I, you know, I, I looked at that question, and there was no real easy answer mm. to it. Uh, but I'm going I'm to jump on the soapbox for a minute. And yes. sometimes, I, you know, I may get myself in trouble with this. But I think a lot of times when we look at affordable housing, um, you know, as a developer, I have to go in front of community boards and community boards say, hey, we want we want low rents, right? And it's needed. You know, right. we need to deeply skew low rents. And it's definitely needed. But that shouldn't be the only ask, right? The only ask, the, the other ask, it should be and we want economic development opportunities, right? We want to see the jobs come into the community. And not only do we want to see the jobs, we want to see the higher paying jobs, right? So it just shouldn't be that we're relegated to, hey, we need very low rent apartments. We need rents that are very low. Landlords, again, are not going to be incentivized to just do that, right? There are there are term sheets that the city of New York has, like the Eller term sheet that will provide that, but all developments are not going to be Eller term sheet deals, right? So I think part of we need low rent, we need low rents also needs to be we need better jobs in the community, not also in the community, we just need better jobs, period. Exactly. Right? The places we shop, right? We go uh, and, the, and the, the businesses in our neighborhood, you know, like I said, I live in Harlem, right. my office is in Harlem, I go in these businesses, a handful of people who, who work there look like me, right? You go downtown, you know, I'm not going to name the stores, but, you know, you go downtown and sure, you may go to the counter and uh, the cash register, the person at the, the register looks like you, mm-hmm. but how about management? How about the supervisor, right? Those higher paying jobs don't necessarily come to the people in our community. So to me, the, the, the answer for our, the residents and the stakeholders is we need more than just, or we demand more than just the low rents. Right. And, you know, we also need the higher incomes. We shouldn't just have to be relegated to that. And there's also homeownership. Right. How do we create value for ourselves if we're just going to be renters? Or like, I grew up, and my dad was in real estate, but I grew up in an apartment. Mm. Right, I didn't become, you know, I didn't grow up in a home. Right, right. So, you know, when I went to college, I took out loans like everyone else does. Right, right. So, how do you? And then, how do you start a business? Like a developer like myself, I can't go to my family and say, "Hey, I need X amount of dollars to to, to purchase a property." My family, they just don't have it. Right? right. So, but where do folks get that wealth, or where do they get that equity? They get it from their homes. That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah, there needs to be more. So they need to be pushing for home ownership opportunities and yeah, home ownership, home ownership opportunities and jobs. Okay, so yeah, I approach it from economic. I always look at things from the economic development yes, aspect. Yes, and as you should. Yes. Yeah. No, but that's crucial. And everyone who's been on this podcast has emphasized and stress that's the key to getting out uh, of. Well, you can't avoid gentrification, but right. you, could, you yeah. could minimize it by purchasing. So that way you're your owner as opposed to a tenant. So no one can dictate or kick you out of a community that you own. Right. You, exactly. have, to, you have to sell. That, that's it. Right. We don't own it. You can't claim it. Yes. 
Awesome. In recent news, Scott Stringer stated that there should be a racial impact study to see how communities of color um, would be impacted by rezoning and development. Do you think these studies would be effective? So um, I guess it puts the science and data behind Mm -hmm. uh, what we already know. Right. Uh, But I think if you could maybe it helps do a a deeper dive into um, what's really happening. Right. Because it's just. Um, you know, topically, yeah, sure. Uh, folks are moving into neighborhoods and right. the people who live there move out. But why exactly are they moving out, right? Are they moving out because their rents are going up? For the most part, yes. Um, but like, and I'll, I'll speak about my neighborhood where I live in Harlem. I live in probably the most gentrified part of Harlem. Um, I live on the west side um, below 125th Street. Okay. Right. And, I, and between, say, Morningside Park and, say, Lenox Avenue. But the reason that area became so gentrified because there were so many new units that hit the market. Right, so there were a lot of vacant buildings. There were um, a lot of vacant lots. So as new construction came in, that that meant an influx of new people. Um, now that also means that existing portfolio units, when they become vacant, landlords now see that they can raise the rent. So that's what happens, right? There's this new construction that have, comes in, and then existing landlords say, "Hey, oh, there's an opportunity now to raise my rents." When the apartment becomes vacant, I shoot it up, and then the folks from our community don't live there. Um, there was one of the studies I read. There was a study from the period I think of 2000 to 2010, mm-hmm. uh, Greenpoint in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where they talked about there were. Maybe about sixty thousand residents in the area, and about twelve thousand Latino families moved out during that period of time, and about thirteen thousand new families and moved in, which were primarily white families. And again, does that data help you understand why that happened? I mean, good that we know what happens, right. but what do you do with the data at that point? Yes. So yes, it's good to know. Yes. But I think you know you have to figure out what is the, what's the trigger, right? Why are folks moving out, right? Um, is it because someone lost a job, or is it that folks are just deciding, hey, we want to move to another community, or the the, the rents are going up and we can't afford the rents. Now, if you're in a rent-stabilized apartment, your rent is only limited on how much you could go up. So right. that shouldn't, you shouldn't be affected by that. Mm. Right? So that's what I'm saying. You need to have a, a deeper dive into right. what's really happening. Right. Good yeah. point. Yeah. Good point. Uh, how does Lamore Development dif- differentiate themselves from other affordable housing development or com- entities? Yeah, so I, when we we pitched ourselves to a church and I was asked that question, and you know, mm-hmm. my answer was, a lot of developers, you know, we all, everyone has the skill set. Right. They can get these deals done. We all have the same relationships with the institutions, with the banks, with the cities and what have you. But I think it's a matter of the relationship you have with your partner, right? So I recognize in the real estate business and, well, in the development business, this is a relationship game. Yes. Um, and you get into a relationship with people you feel comfortable with, mm. right? So I tell folks, do you feel comfortable with me? If I don't feel comfortable with you, then... It's not going to work for me, right. right? So part of it is you have to. We have to un- understand which either, each other's goals and wants are, uh, but our personalities have to work together. It's, it's like a marriage, right? This is right. these long term right. deals. We're going to be together for thirty years, forty years, sometimes fifteen years, but whatever. It is, it's a relationship. So I just tell folks, you know, with me, you know, I don't, I don't overpromise. I tell you what I can do. I tell you what I can't do. Um, if you're comfortable with that, and we can work with that. You know, I'm going to not going to. You know, I'm going to be very ethical with you. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm going to be honest. And that's what I bring to the table. That's, I love it. Straightforward. Yep. yep that's, yes. that's it. Okay. That's it. As a second generation developer and as a Harlem Knight, you have witnessed firsthand how Harlem gentrified right before your eyes and no one can change the past, obviously. Right. But what lessons can you extract from the past and bring to your future so, to kind of shape your, right. your so, goals. So if I had a quarter for every time I had a conversation about someone saying, I wish I would have bought a brownstone in Harlem and such and such time. But like I said, right. 
there were, there were nuances to it, right? Because there were some families, there were some folks from our community trying to buy these brownstones. Mm. They just could not, right? That's the story that's not told. You know what? Tell it, please. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So I'm telling, as, yes. as a real estate broker, a salesperson in 1988, 89, mm. there were some folks from the community who wanted to buy these brownstones. They were dirt cheap, right? right. 35000 right. 65000 Thirty-five. Some were shelves. Some needed work, but they were being they were at the, that price point. Uh, but there were no banks doing lending. That's right. At that time, in those communities, in those communities, right? right. And, and I, I'm I'm speaking specifically of home. Yes. And because a lot of these homes were SROs, right? So the the the, the the response from the bank was, well, it's an SRO, so we don't lend, we don't loan the SRO. Hmm. It has to be a one family. It has to be a two hmm. family, right? But there should have been uh, uh, financing in place to convert these homes to make them one and twos because there was other financing programs out there like the 203K program that That's would right. do that. But f- for the most part, the major financing institutions were not doing it in Harlem. There was um, one or two banks that were doing it, um, and they weren't necessarily the conventional banks that we know about. Uh, they, point, they charge a whole lot more um, point higher points. Um, interest rate was a little bit higher. And only persons who couldn't afford to do it were investors. Right? So... So you saw that happening, but you know, obviously, hindsight. You know, you could, if I could go back, you know, especially as a real estate professional, you know, I probably could have figured out how to purchase one or two. Right. So I think now, moving forward, as you see what's happening in other neighborhoods, right? Harlem is no longer uh, an option, but you know, you look at um, uh, East New York. Um, there are parts in Queens. You know, I always encourage my friends who talk about they want to get in real estate. I said, listen, even if you're living in an apartment, buy a property. It doesn't have necessarily have to be your primary residence, and it could be an investment. You have to purchase. I don't care where you purchase. That's right. Right? If it's, uh, you know, like I said, Harlem is, off to, is, is not part of the question or part of the equation, but if there's opportunities in the Bronx, uh, even if it's a co-op or a condo. I had a, a young gentleman who came to me a couple of weeks ago, and he asked for advice on how she, how she uh, should jump into an investment market. And I told him to look at condos. I said, go to Parkchester. Right, and you can purchase a one or two bedroom condo at a reasonable rate if you don't have a whole lot of dollars, but at least it gets you into the business. Right, right. You have something, and then you can move on from there. But and and it's a low cost of entry, so don't necessarily have to purchase a home. It doesn't right. have to be a three family. Right. Look at a condo. That's right. Co ops a little risky because of the shareholders and the mm-hmm. boards and all the rules and regulations. But if, you, if there are condos that you can. Jump on, um, as opposed to purchasing a, a home. Right. I would say just you have to purchase, though. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So. What are some of the notable projects that you have worked on? So the so now so my history has been preservation. Um, so now we're working on some new construction. So um, we're doing a Robinson, which is on Lenox Avenue, okay, and 130th Street. So I'm I'm, I'm proud of that because it's our really our first new construction in Harlem, but it's a ten story building, seventy nine units. 7,500 um, 7, square feet of commercial space. Did you break ground yet? Uh, we broke ground. Yep, nice. we're topped off. We're about 60 to 65% done. Nice. Uh, marketing is about to begin for the rental units. So there's that project. We have another new construction project. It's on a smaller side, but I like the fact it's on 126th Street okay. off the 125th Street corridor. Um, it's, it's 37 units, but again, it's you know it's new product. Um, it's a tax credit product. Uh, and then, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to my home ownership um, deals that we did over 10 to 15 years ago because it provided home ownership for, for residents from those communities, right? So when we sold the homes in Brooklyn, there was a young lady who worked for a bank. She bought a home in, in Bed-Stuy. Um, one of the homes we sold was to a police officer, right? But they were, these were folks from the community, right? So these That's are right. folks now who have equity. This is 10, 15 years ago. Right. These folks have equity in their homes. Oh, I know. Right, right? The, the <laughs> right. markets have changed That's since right. then. Um, so I'm proud of that. 
Yeah, and we also did the same thing in Harlem, right? We were selling these brownstones in Harlem for under six hundred thousand dollars. What year? This was maybe two thousand. It was right when the right when the market crashed, right? Really? So it was around two thousand eight. Yeah, it was Get out. yeah, yeah. Because they were they were subsidy dollars because they, they they were HUD homes. Oh, okay. Right, okay. but they went to families. You know that means they have enforcement notes, but fifteen years ago, right? At some point, those enforcement notes fall off. So you have a brownstone that that's you paid right. five hundred and change that's right. for that's worth two million dollars now, maybe three, right? right? So, so to me, those are the that that those that can change someone's life, right? That, that absolutely, can change, yeah. Absolutely. So that's to me those those are the impactful deals. I like that. I yeah. like that you mentioned those. Yeah. So. What is the greatest challenge? Because people always see the successes, right? They never see the iceberg effect. They never see like you know you're chipping away and right. you're, you know you're trying to exactly you're trying to make it happen. What are the greatest challenges that you face in the affordable housing space? So one of them. So I, since I have what I call my legacy units, right? So how to keep those units uh, in the black, right? Meaning um, those buildings. Some of them I. Um, my portfolio. I have tenants who are still paying deeply skewed rents, mm. right? But expenses have gone. Right. So, it, you know, it's, it's a challenge to keep those projects uh, um, making a profit because it's just it's just hard to do with, with the really low rents. Right. Um, and then especially with the, the, the lack of rent increases that we're going to have going forward, it just changes the whole strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the development side, you know, we're talking about just equity, um, being able to raise dollars, um, having pre-development funds available. Uh, a shop like mine, we do two and three deals a year. Before, I was doing one deal a year. So when you just do two and three deals a year, there's not a whole bunch of revenue coming in, right? When you do development, there's a long runway uh, of pre-development time before you actually turn into start seeing the profit. Right. I mean, that can go three, four years in that some hurt. instances, and you have right. dollars in that in that deal. And that's not revenue coming in. That's revenue going out. Right. Well, not revenue, but it's, it's funds going out, right, and without revenue coming in. So, so how do you that's the challenge. It's, that's why we diversify, right? That's where we're looking at going. Every deal can't be a tax credit deal, right? Because you just won't be able to sustain ourselves. Unless we get to the point where we're doing five and six or seven a year where there's, there's, there's income coming in. Correct. But we're not doing those kind of deals. And we're not uh, – some developers are also contractors. We're not a contractor. So if you're a contractor, you have revenue coming in from your contracting work. But if you don't have that, what do you do? So for us, we do preservation deals, right? When you do preservation – um, stabilization can happen a whole lot quicker than you're starting to see profits and a whole lot quicker. Uh, we do investments like we did in, in Georgia, and we look to do some more of those. So for us, it's diversifying um, the portfolio. Good, good, good. And please share two policies impacting housing that you would change and why. So the main one, this should, just, this should count for 10, would be the Housing <laughs> Stability and, <laughs> and Tenant Protection Act for 2019. Okay. Right, so that's the, the the new rent laws that went into effect. But the reason I I say they affect us, uh, I'll, I'll speak about my portfolio yes. specifically because I have again these legacy um, units where I have these tenants paying these deeply skewed rents. However, we also had moderately uh, rated apartments in these buildings, so those units would uh, we would be able to raise the rents on those units to kind of cross subsidize these low rent apartments. That's been taken away from us now. So when that happens, these portfolios, there's no there's no potential upside. So that that's that's a risk you know, that's hard to mitigate. Um, so I you know we're talking to some folks. Maybe there should be with this new law. There should be a carve out for buildings with uh, that are affordable, right? They have regulatory agreements. We're trying to see if there's some kind of carve. I'm having some conversations okay. to see if we can make that happen. So if that if that can happen, um, then I, I think it kind of helps preserve the affordable housing. Yeah, units. Got it. That are out there. Got it. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. We literally went through all our questions so quickly. Okay. I, I, I was learning so much. For, oh my god, from this conversation. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate you sharing your wealth of knowledge. You sure. Have so much, you know, so much information that you've just shared with the audience. Now, um, any. Oh, sorry. No worries. <laughs> Any recommendations that you would give to a millennial, uh, aside from you know making sure that you do your due diligence and research and become a homeowner? Right, definitely and, become a homeowner. Right, indeed. that's uh, the biggest takeaway right. from this conversation. But any other recommendations you would say to uh, for someone who wants to get into the affordable housing space? So uh, most yeah. definitely. Oh, sure, sure, indeed. So you have to uh, joint ventures. I think are okay. the way to go. Um, in turn, I, I get a lot of calls from. Um, young folks who are coming out of school who want to intern with us because they want to learn the business. Right. Uh, I think that's the way to do it. The, right. the way to learn, the, the way I learned to do the business is not the way most people get into the business, right? Most people either worked on Wall Street or worked for another developer <clears throat> or um, worked in some capacity in real estate. Right. But I learned, and my dad and I learned development by just doing it. Right. right. So that's, that's not the norm, right? Most folks are not going to have the opportunity to just be able to jump out there and do a development right. deal. Um, but if you work with an existing port developer, like I said, your intern, take on the job, uh, whatever it is, just sit, sitting out there at, at the table just to be part of the conversation. I think that's that's how you do it, right? I'm working with a gentleman right now who brought me a deal. Oh. Uh, he doesn't necessarily know the, the development aspect, right. but he knew how to get to the deal. That's right. And he sits at the table with us um, for every aspect of the conversation. Right. So he's learning the business. Right. Um, our, our, our team is part of a, um, a RAD, um, or one of the NYCHA RFP, the one of the NYCHA developments, uh, 1700 unit portfolio in Manhattan that runs from downtown all the way up to Washington Heights. Uh, and we're a small percentage of the, uh, of the, of the, of the ownership, but we, we get a chance to sit down at the table with our financial institutions, our financial partners, um, and the bigger developers who are part of the deal. And we're learning the business, right? So we're going to be doing the 1700 unit RAD conversion. So now this puts us in a position to look at other RAD conversions, whether it be in New York City. Explain or, what RAD is, please. So, yes. um, so RAD is a, a financing mechanism that HUD has provided to convert um, Section 8 housing for permanent affordable. Like it's like a, it's like a form of Section 8 housing, but it's permanently affordable for another 30 years. Got it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I figure what the acronym stands for. <laughs> okay. I, I probably need to look it up real quick. But, okay. but yeah, but they're known as RADs. Okay. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Kenneth. Thank yes. you so, so much for your time. Sure. I appreciate you. You're I think you're amazing. I think you're doing amazing things. I, I look forward to your successes in the future. Thank I you. I appreciate you lot, that. Yeah. I know you have a lot in store. And um, uh, other places you want to develop aside from New York and Atlanta? Wherever there's opportunities, we will yes. look at. Yes. Uh, but I think for us, since we're uh, the size of where we are, we yes. don't want to spread ourselves too thin. But I mean... If someone calls and says, hey, Ken, there's a great deal in Florida. You need right. to look at it. <laughs> um, you know, it makes sense. You're going to make money immediately. We're going to look at oh, it. I know that's right. Right. I know so, that's right. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, we like I said, we like the Atlanta region um, for various reasons, but we're open to wherever there are opportunities and deals. Do you know where, do you, you have a feeling or a hunch of where like the next big market is in terms of housing? Because every urban community is, is feeling the same impact right. everywhere. Right. Um, but I heard Florida, Orlando is like a new hub and Atlanta, like you said, other right. areas that you foresee. So I've been, uh, a few folks have mentioned Cleveland to me. Yes. Yep. I knew you were so, going to say that. Okay. Yep. Cleveland and, uh, Minneapolis. Hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've, I've heard that. So um, I've actually been sent some information in, in those communities. Okay. Yeah, but they're not they're not necessarily multifamily. They're these um, single family portfolios. Okay. Right? Maybe Got 10, it. 15. Right. Um, but that's not the world I want to be in. Right. Um, but yeah, those are some of those places. Uh, I, I, matter of fact, a friend of mine went to Cleveland and, and invested in some some properties. Yeah. And he's so far so good. He's doing well. He, yeah, he's been there for about six months. Okay. And he's looking to do more. And you know, the the price points are so great for him. He's like the cost of entry is so good. Exactly. It made sense. Um, exactly. Philadelphia is another place. I heard uh, the, mar- the market is getting a little saturated over there because yeah, a lot of people is. are talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting. I, I went to Philadelphia um, a few months ago, and you know I, I have family in Philadelphia, okay. and there are parts of Philadelphia that I just don't recognize anymore. Right, the housing mm. stock has stayed the same, but the residents have totally changed. Right, yes. so the area by Drexel University, which you know 15 years ago was a black community, right, is not black at all mm. now. Right, I, I drove. I'm driving by. I said, "Wait a minute, I must be lost." I know it's been a few years <laughs> right, since right, I've been right. over here. Right, but uh, even um, Fishtown, which is I'm not sure how familiar you are with I'm, Philadelphia, no. but it was an area that was known not to right to change it. Mm. It's really so. It's so. What's happening in Harlem, the Bed Stuy's, East yes. New York? It's happening in all cities. It's, yes, all of right? it's happening in Philadelphia. Baltimore, for some reason, seems to have a struggle for it to happen. I'm surprised Baltimore hasn't really jumped off yet. Right. Uh, but D.C., you know, I went to school in D.C. It was chocolate city when I went there. There's nothing chocolate about D.C. now. <laughs> so, right? so It's amazing. And I, I'm, I'm even seeing parts of uh, Atlanta become gentrified. I was just down, mm. well, you know, I go down there on a right. regular basis, and right. I'm starting to see parts of Atlanta become gentrified. And so it's it, uh, folks are recognizing that it's better to be, the trend now is to come back into the city. Right? Transportation, you're closer to your job. You know, folks now don't necessarily have to have cars. You know, sub uh, transportation in most of these hubs. A walking city. Yep. Yes. Yep. So and millennials. Yes. Right. They don't. They don't buy cars. Like no. you know, when I first came out of you know when I was a young man, the that's, first thing I couldn't wait to do was get my first right. car. That's millennials right. Millennials don't think like that. Right. They have Uber. That's right. Right. They that's have right. Lyft, and then if they need to <laughs> rent a car for the weekend, they'll just do a weekend rental. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a different. It's a totally different landscape out right, there. So, right. Right. Yeah. No, that that definitely shapes the way uh, the market is going to look. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's amazing. Like, I'm noticing in Nassau, Suffolk County, is in Long Island. Right. That was the thing. It's like, all right, make some money. I move to suburbs. Right. But now people don't want to pay the property taxes. Right. They don't. Want, they don't want to pay the railroad or right. the the NJ Transit. And, and folks are also having a smaller family, so it made sense, yeah, right? So if yes. you moved up to Westchester County or yes. you moved to Nassau County, and you didn't mind paying higher taxes because you had three or right. four children in the school system. That's true. But now families are having just maybe one child, That's two right. children. So you know what? I'll move to the city. Pay lower taxes and either get them in the gifted entirely program or just send them to private school. That's a valid point you made. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's that's true what's because, Yeah, the families are getting smaller, so that's one of the main. That's good. Yeah, great. Yeah, point. why why pay you know? Yeah, deal with town like Hastings on the Hudson is a that's great right. town, but why pay thirty thousand dollars in taxes? Right, you have one child. That's right. Right, that's but right. you have three. Sure, it makes sense. You have one. Mm. I'll just move to the city. Great point. Right? Great point. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. about it that way. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we have another episode. Okay. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. No problem. Again. I know that you have a lot more going on that I'm going to be eventually be able to invite you back on sure. to share. Okay. Appreciate it. I think it. you're amazing. Thank you. Thank so you. So are you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into Secrets of the Cell. If you have any questions for Ken Morrison, can they reach you? Sure. Okay. Um, Ken at LamoreDev, L-E-M-O-R-D, as in development, ev.com, 212 2714 extension 111. Amazing. All right, guys, there you have it. Secrets of the Cell with uh, Kenneth Morrison from Lamore Development. Thanks again for tuning in. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.